I had a father I didn't know recognize me in Ralph's the other day, and he had a son who went to the middle school one-day retreat, winter retreat last week. And uh, he was telling me how great it was, how much fun his son had. And he said, when he was asking his son about it, his son said to him, you know what, Dad? I realized over the course of this year, I forgot about God. And so he was reminded of God. And I think with all that's gone on in the course of the last 11 or 12 months, that many of us, for fear or frustration or maybe boredom or the rhythms of life being disrupted, we've kind of forgotten God. We've kind of left God out of the equation of our lives, and we've, we've drifted from God. Today, I want us to look again into the book of James, if you want to turn there in your Bibles or go there on a mobile device, to the New Testament book of James. We're going to talk about when we drift away from God. And we say, you know what? We kind of have this wake-up moment of, I've kind of drifted away from the Lord. I've kind of left him out. I've kind of forgotten him. And as we look at James 4, verses 1 through 10, we'll see that when we drift away from God, we abandon the satisfaction and peace he wants for our lives. God wants the best for you. He wants you to enjoy life, to have meaning and satisfaction and peace. But when we drift away from God, we leave him out. We even get to the point that our posture begins to turn so that our back is turned away from the Lord and we find ourselves in a place that we need to have kind of a come-to-Jesus moment where we get serious about where we are before the Lord. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 and see the cause, how we got there, and then we're going to look at the correction in verses 7 through 10 of this wonderful passage of Scripture before us today. Let's look first at the cause The cause is that we arrogantly think we don't need God. We get into this place, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, we think we know better than God and we don't need God in our life right now. We've got this. Sometimes crisis drives us to take control of things we would have allowed God to control. We, we, we think that we've got this figured out or we'll pursue our own means. We get to this point where we arrogantly think we don't need God. Let's look at verses four through six here of James four. Begins in verse one, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now he says, you guys are at strife with one another in the body of Christ. The brothers and sisters of Christ are fighting over stuff. And boy, has that not been true over the course of the last year. There's been a lot of tension in families, in marriages, in, in business, within business associates and, and small groups and Bible studies and churches. What causes fights and quarrels among you? which is really interesting because if you go to the last verse of chapter three, he's just been talking about peacemakers and he says, peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. So he's just been talking about peacemaking and he says, but you don't have that. You're not experiencing that harvest of righteousness of living and loving like Jesus, thriving because you've got fights and quarrels among you. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? This word desires is an interesting word. You know the word hedonism? Uh, the belief that just pursuing our own passions and pleasures will be, bring fulfillment. That's the word here. It's used again in verse 3. We'll see in a moment. It's used five times in the New Testament, the Greek word that's hedonism in English. Five times. Two of them are right here. Two of the five in all the New Testament. They come from your desires, your own passions for pleasure that battle within you. There's a struggle within us. It's the battle between the flesh and the spirit that's always waging war. He said it's going on, but you've allowed it to continue. Verse 2, you desire but do not have. What you want, so you kill. 
Now, most scholars say the Christians probably weren't literally killing each other, but the, James is using the language where Jesus said, you hate someone so intensely that it's equal to murder. You desire, but you do not have, so you intensely hate one another. You covet, you're jealous what other people have in their lives, their marriages, their jobs, their situation. So, but you, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. There's where it comes from. You do not have because you do not ask God. You do not ask God because you've concluded you don't need God, so you're not going to ask God. Verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. What are your motives rooted in? That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. This is the word hedonism again. You, you don't ask God, and even if you would, you'd be asking with the wrong motive, so he's not going to give you what you think is going to bring pleasure and please you. He has something better for you, but you've rejected that. Then verse 4, you adulterous people. Wow, that's strong language. You people who are unfaithful to God, don't you know that friendship with the world... Now, what is the world? Does that mean the people? No, this is the system of the world. The Apostle John says it in 1 John that the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It boils down to selfish greed, selfish pride and arrogance, selfish lust. That's the world's philosophy and system. It comes at us in all kinds of ways through the media and all kinds of values that are thrown at us. The scriptures describe Satan as the one who controls this world's philosophy and systems. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's strong language. Verse 5. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within you? The Old Testament tells us that our God is a God of holy jealousy. He was we were designed by him to have a relationship with him. And when we turn our backs on him and we embrace the things of the world, there is a, a holy jealousy and the very spirit he has placed within us is designed to point our attention, to draw our hearts toward God. Then verse six, but he gives us more grace. Isn't that great? After all that strong language, he gives us goodness and kindness we don't deserve. That is why the scripture says, then he quotes the psalmist, the writer of the Proverbs, quotes Jesus himself, God opposes the proud. He resists the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So the hint here is, uh, the cause is your own arrogance says, I don't need God. But humility is gonna be the key to having a restored relationship with God and getting ourselves back in a place where we can experience the satisfaction and peace that God has for our lives. In these first six verses, as we think about the cause, that we, we've come to this conclusion we don't need God, it's because we've believed two lies that Satan has fed to us through the world. Two lies. The first lie is this, found in verses one through three. What we want is better than what God will give us. What I want is better than what God will give me. What a lie. Like God is holding back on me as from me as his child. The, the, he, he's keeping things from me. And when we start to believe that, some things settle into our hearts. We believe that what we want is better than what God will give us. The first thing that happens is we become dissatisfied. We become dissatisfied. 
We're stirred up in the inside. Nothing can make us happy because we believe we need this or we need that. It's gonna, it's gonna come to us through the media or through the fulfillment of our, our passions, through politics. There's gonna be something out there. And so we pursue these things that it's just a little more, a little more, a little more, and we're never satisfied because we believe there's something we want that we don't believe God is giving us. Nothing can make us happy. He says, this comes from your desires that battle within you, the, the selfish passions and the desire for pleasure that comes within you. We become dissatisfied. Secondly, we become desperate. We become desperate. You notice here that others then are in our way. We want what they have so badly. He says, you kill, you hate intensely other people. You covet, but you can't get what they have. And so you keep trying but people become objects that are obstacles in our way of getting what we want. And so people become things rather than individuals made in the image of God. People become obstacles for us to achieve what we want to achieve. We reach this desperation. And he says clearly in verse 2 that this, this intense hate, this coveting that we have, it's causing the tension and strife within us. What happens when you get desperate like that? Well, Zig Ziglar says, the way you see people is the way you treat people. If you see them as an object that is an obstacle for accomplishing what you want to see accomplished, what you want to see happen, what you think is best, then you're going to start treating people who differ from you and see things differently than you, and it's going to create tension and strife even within brothers and sisters in Christ. Thirdly, we become distracted we become distracted. We get dissatisfied in our own lives. We get desperate in how we treat people and we get distracted. God doesn't matter. You don't go to God because you know, according to these verses, the God who really wants your heart aimed at him, even put his spirit in you, verse five says, so that your heart is aimed at him. That God who has a holy jealousy is not giving you what you want because you ask out of selfish motives. You just want God to be this giant genie who gives you whatever you want. We get distracted from God in our relationship with him. We stop, op stop opening his word. We stop talking to him in prayer. We stop being a part of services either online or in person. We back out of that small group. We, we don't volunteer like we once did. We begin to just sort of back off and, and cut things off. Even in, the, in this time of limitation, there are opportunities for us to lean in, but we get distracted because we believe what we want is better than what God will give us. He says in verse two, the last part of it, you don't ask because you, you, you don't have because you don't ask. Then he says you got the wrong motives and you're just trying to fulfill your hedonistic pleasures. Line number one, what we want is better than what God will give us. Are you dissatisfied? Are you desperate? Are you distracted? Secondly, the second lie that we see here in verses four through six is a lie that Satan feeds us. It says, what the world has, what the world's system and philosophy, what those who are far from God have to offer us is better than what God can offer us. What they have already is better than what God can give me or offers me in him. What a lie. You can see the dissatisfaction continuing, a lack of peace, more desperation. You can see this distracted this mindset that is distracted from God. He starts off this section in verse four. You 
adulterous people, you unfaithful people. If you look at the Old Testament, you see Israel is constantly unfaithful to God, but God is constantly there, faithful and ready to receive them in his grace. We are unfaithful to the one who is most faithful. We're unfaithful to the most faithful. We believe the lie that the world has something better for us and we go running toward the world and we have our backs toward our God. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful for he cannot deny who he is. Isn't it great that our God is faithful even when we're not faithful? That he's there with his grace as we approach him in humility? Secondly, when we believe the lie that the world already has something better than God offers us, we unfriend our greatest friend. The greatest friendship we could ever have is to be a friend of God, to be a friend of God. And when we say, oh, no, this is more important to me, God, than you are, we unfriend God. Praise God, he doesn't unfriend us. We're firm in his hold, and he's there with his arms out wide to receive us in his grace. Every now and then someone will get really obnoxious on my social media and they'll be rude and use terrible language and just mean-spirited. It's not just disagreement. There's something just, and I unfriend them. And, and some of these people, their, their tone is just awful, unchristian. And I still feel a little guilty when I say unfollow or unfriend to cut off someone. But when we drift away from God and we believe the lie that the world has something that God won't offer us that'll bring us satisfaction, we really unfriend God. And the verse says that we, we become friends with the world and that friendship with the world causes this enmity with God. It's a serious thing. We believe this lie. We then practice this unfaithful pattern of life and have this unfaithful posture. Someone has put it this way, life is not always fair, but God is always faithful. We may unfriend him, but he doesn't unfriend us. Maybe uh, you are here today, and as we had communion, you heard me talk about how through what Jesus did, we have a right relationship with God. See, when sin entered into humanity, every human being then was born with a broken relationship with God that, that none of us can resolve on our own. Jesus came, he died, was buried, and rose again so that we put our faith in him and his finished work. God restores our relationship with him, with himself, through his son. Not through anything we do, not the good things of going to church or all the good things we could do in the world, but through Jesus. And if you haven't come to faith in Christ, then you haven't had that relationship restored. To have him be your friend who will never unfriend you, you come to faith in him. And I want to encourage you, if today's the day you put your faith in Christ, or maybe it's been something recently and you want to express that to us, we'd love to help you understand what it means now to walk with this friend. You can text the name Jesus to the number on the screen if you're home. You can do that right now in the room. You can do that. If you're here on campus, we'll have care team members down front who will pray with you and help you in any way, pray with you about what it means to know Jesus as your friend. We believe these lies. We become unfaithful and unfriendly toward God. All this is true, and I love the contrast then, but God, but God will extend his grace to us, his goodness that we don't deserve. In James 4, 6, we read, but he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace, but God will extend his grace to us. 
He offers it to us. He's there with open arms that when we who have our backs turned to him turn, we find him arms wide open, ready to receive us according to his grace and goodness. Verse six, verse six says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. That word favor is the same word for grace when it says he gives grace. He extends grace. He gives us favor, grace, when we humble ourselves before him. Another old hymn I love, it's written in the Elizabethan English, he giveth more grace. The first stanza says, he giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. And then the refrain or the chorus says, his love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. God will never give up on you, whether you consciously or subconsciously drift from him and come to the conclusion that you don't need God because you believe what you want is better than what God will give you because you believe that what the world has to offer you is better than what God can offer you. Praise God, he's there with open arms, ready to show us his grace once again. Maybe God's speaking to you and you say, boy, I'm in that place. What are the steps I need to take? Well, he's really clear about this. James is really clear in verses seven through 10. There's the cause we've bought into the lies of Satan that somehow God is holding back on us. And so we become unfaithful and unfriendly toward him. But the correction is this in verses seven through 10. We humbly conclude we do need God. We come to this point, we say, you know what, Lord? I've been acting like, behaving like, that I don't need you, but I do need you. Let's look at verses 7 through 10 of James 4 together. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then he says in verse 9, grieve, mourn, and wail. This is getting serious Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What? Humble yourselves before the Lord. Here it is again. And he will lift you up. After we dealt with the cause that we believe we don't need God, humility was the key to experiencing his grace. Now, as he says, here are the steps you take. The conclusion is, as you humble yourself, he will restore you to hope. He will lift you up. In this passage, there are 10 verbs in a row, 10 verbs. They are all commands and they're all in a tense that often means past time in the original Greek in which the New Testament was written, but it also just means action in a point in time. It's a rare combination to have 10 verbs in a row in a paragraph of the New Testament that are all in the command mode and are all in this tense, the aorist tense. The, the closest thing to it is four or five verses in a row with the same type of voice and command and the same kind of tense. And so James is using this as a way to say something very clear to us. You see, this command mode and this tense is the idea of, here's what you do, do it now, don't procrastinate. 
Don't put it off. We tend to hear something in a sermon. We hear something as we're engaging online or in person, and then we, we walk away and we should have, I could have, I should have done this, I should have done that, and we don't do it. By using this, he's saying, don't procrastinate. You know, we, we talk about having a come to Jesus moment. It's even gotten into our culture. It's not just come to Jesus as Savior or as his child come to him in a serious moment. It, it's, it's been used in secular culture. I was watching an NFL game a few years ago and the quarterback had just made a big blunder and he comes off the, the field and the coach meets him on the edge of the field and they're really intense talking to each other and the coach is in his face and the announcer says they're having a come to Jesus moment. Right there, right now. That's what James is saying. We need to have a come to Jesus moment. Don't procrastinate. When I was researching procrastination, I came across the Procrastinators Club of Philadelphia. In 1966, while there were protests against the Vietnam War, the, the Procrastinators Club of Philadelphia decided to protest the War of 1812. <laughs> I thought that was quite interesting. They really put it off quite a bit, that Procrastinators Club. Then I started noticing, after I was doing research online about procrastination, and I started getting advertisements in my searches and in Facebook and things that were for, you know, a program to help you not procrastinate, it'll help you with project management and, you know, tips on procrastination, click and get this booklet, this ebook. I'm getting all these ads about procrastination and a lot of them were so good and I just decided I just saved them all for another day. <laughs> oh, you got it, all right. James is saying don't do that. He gives these 10 verbs and I think he gives us in these 10 verbs five steps we need to take when we recognize that we've bought into the lie that God's holding back on us and that what we want is better than what he can give us, what the world offers is better than what he offers. Five steps. The first step is this, verse seven. Step number one, bow down. How long has it been since you got on your knees beside your bed before God? I see, I've seen some drift. I've got my back a little bit. I've been a little unfaithful. Uh, it hasn't been a conscious thing. I haven't made conscious choices of sin. I've just sort of left God out. I sort of believed I just didn't need God. It starts with bowing down. Verse seven says, submit yourselves to God. We're to submit ourselves to God. This is a military term. Again, it's in the command, do it now. And it's the idea that you say, yes, sir, to those above you. <laughs> Bow down and say, yes, sir, God. You are my Lord and my master. Secondly, lean in. Lean in. There's two parts to this. The first one is that first command there in verses seven and eight. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Turn your back on the things of this world and its philosophy. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then draw near to God. So how do you lean into God? You lean away from the devil and he will leave you. A lot of people say to me, how do I get rid of demonic activity and the devil in my life? The very first step to that is you turn your back on the things that he's telling you to prioritize and pursue and you lean into God. You resist the devil, he'll flee from you. You lean into God, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a precious promise. So what does that mean? You open your Bible again. You spend time in prayer. You go back to the basic disciplines. You hang out with God's family. If you're not comfortable or able to be with us in the room, you, you join online. You, you set aside all distractions. You engage with that small group. You, you encourage and build other believers in Christ. You, you allow them to speak into your life. 
lean in. Thirdly, you wash up. You confess your sin. You tell God, I see this as sin. I see my waywardness. I see I bought in the lie. I see my unfaithfulness. I admit I said I don't need you, and I do. You confess it. You repent of it. That means you, you turn from it and turn toward him. You wash up. He says to clean your hands or wash your hands. That speaks of uh, the stuff on the outside where it's become obvious to others. We go to others and we deal with the sin that has affected them. We confess our faults and our sins to them and ask their forgiveness and turn from that. Clean your hands, you sinners, and then purify our hearts. He says, purify your hearts, double-minded. Now you deal with what's on the inside. You confess the thoughts and you, you, you confess the double-mindedness. What's the double-mindedness? Oh, I love Jesus, but boy, oh boy, he doesn't have the answers the world does. My wants do, my desires do. I've tried to find satisfaction in something else. I say I'm a Christian. I I say Christ is important in my life, but I'm pursuing these things. Confess that double-mindedness. Repent of it. You bow down. You lean in. You wash up. And then step number four, you cry out. You cry out. I love how he says grieve. That word has the idea of mourning over what has happened. Mourn. This has the idea of you grieve or sorrow over what could have been, and then wail. This is to cry to such a point that it makes noise that others notice. That's why it says wail in the translation. You know, sin should break us. We should be upset over the fact we've said, God, my God who sent Jesus for me, you, you don't have what I really need and what will really fulfill me. You don't know what will satisfy me. You don't know what will bring me peace. My wants and desires do. My hedonism does. And this world has it, but you don't. We should grieve over that. We should mourn over that. We should weep over that. And then he says in verse 9, turn your laughter into mourning. Your joy into gloom. Well, this is a pretty negative thing. All he's saying is we should get serious with God and agonize. There should be brokenness before him because of our sin that his spirit has revealed in our hearts and our minds and our lives and our relationships. He said, well, this is a pretty, that's a pretty down moment in that step forward. Don't get stuck there. Don't stay there. Remember, the arms of grace are wide open for you to come and experience the the kindness and the the goodness of God. A.W. Pink says, after grief over sin, there should be joy for forgiveness. You move beyond the grief over your sin and, and you look up. That's the fifth step. You look up. Yes, you're broken down. You cry out in, in pain and brokenness over your sin and waywardness and the foolishness of your arrogance. And then you look up. Humble ourselves. That means to put yourself below someone else. You humble yourself. You look up to him. You see... When we bow down, we lean in, we wash up, we cry out, and we look up to God in humility. Then there's an and God. And God will lift you up. He will restore his hope to you. Remember, in our, in our believing those lies, our unfaithfulness, our unfriendliness to God, he's there ready to receive us in grace. But as we bow down, lean in, wash up, cry out, and then look up to God, 
He is there to pick us up in our humility and set our eyes again on Jesus and to restore his hope to us, to give us fresh eyes for what he has. Has God been speaking to you today? Has he been suggesting that you need to humble yourself? James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. He will restore his hope to you. Maybe the Holy Spirit said, yeah, you've got your back toward God. Yeah, you've bought into the idea that your wants are gonna bring more satisfaction than what God can give you. Yeah, you've bought into the idea that the world offers you something your God won't offer you that's so much better. The Holy Spirit's saying, hey, the arms of grace are open wide. Come, and what do you do? You do the correction. You say, Lord, I do need you. You bow down. You lean in. You wash up. You cry out in brokenness. Then you look up and let him restore his hope in your life. He'll meet you in that moment. He'll get your eyes back on Jesus. You know what happens to the body of Christ when that happens? A lot of the tension, a lot of the squabbles, all that begins to fade because we're focused on Jesus, not ourselves and our wants or our ideas or our thoughts, but we're focused on Jesus. Maybe God's speaking to you in this moment. Ten verbs, just a couple of verses, seven, eight, nine, and ten. These ten verbs say, now, don't procrastinate. On February 11th, Joe Ligon was released from a prison, a maximum security prison in Pennsylvania, Graterford Prison. I've actually held some Bible studies in there when I was on staff of a church near Graterford Prison. Don't know if I met Joe, but he'd been in prison 68 years when he was released. He was sentenced when he was 15 years old. He'd been involved in a number of robberies and crimes, and in one incident, a person was killed. There was a number of teens involved, and he always professed his innocence, and, and uh, lawyers still believe they can prove his innocence. But he was sentenced at age 15 to life in prison without parole. Well, in 2016, the Supreme Court decided that life without parole for juveniles was cruel and unusual punishment. And so juveniles had their records changed and they could be resentenced with parole as a possibility. So just in Pennsylvania alone in 2017, 500 individuals who had been sentenced to life without parole as juveniles were released from prisons in Pennsylvania. So when Joe Ligon had the opportunity to be released in 2017, he said he was going to wait until parole would not be required because he didn't want to be freed from prison and still have to answer to someone. He wanted complete freedom. Now here's a man who went to prison in 1953 before most Americans had TVs, before John Kennedy was elected president. He went to a maximum security prison and lived 68 years in that prison. At 83, two weeks ago, February 11th, he was let out of jail. He could have been let out in 2017 but he refused and finally through some court things, he was released this month. And in one of the initial interviews, they said, do you regret that you weren't released when others were released? And he said, I shouldn't have put it off. I shouldn't have procrastinated. More family and friends died in those last couple years that I missed out on seeing personally. He regretted his procrastination. I guarantee you, 
that if you procrastinate making the correction in your life, having a come-to-Jesus moment, and you try to keep pursuing your own wants and what the world has to offer, you're going to be miserable. You're not going to be satisfied. You're going to lack peace. You're going to be in conflict with others. Don't wait. Don't wait. Are you drifting away from God? Have you been drifting away from God? If so, today, this afternoon, go home. Walk through these five steps. The other thing about this tense that's wonderful is it doesn't mean just one time. It means you can do it in an iterative way. And so maybe every day this week, if you see yourself having drifted either consciously or subconsciously into this stage where you said, I don't need God for whatever reason, each day this week, work through those 10 commands, those five steps before the Lord. Don't wait. Do it now. Don't have regrets later. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Just talk to the Lord for a moment. Just speak to him and share with him maybe what the Spirit of God has been saying to you. Maybe he's been showing you some areas where you've said, I don't need you, God, in this area of my life. I got this figured out. Maybe you've been pursuing your own passions and pleasures and you haven't been able to ask God for it because you know your motives are wrong. Maybe whether it's with your career or with your finances or your family or your politics or whatever it is, you're saying, I don't need God in this. I got it figured out. Right now, just acknowledge before God you need him. Commit today to sit down, move your heart and your mind, yourself, in the spirit through these five steps. Commit to do that today. And then do that each day this week to experience the refreshing grace of God and let him lift you up in hope. Just talk to God. Father, thank you for not holding anything back from us. Thank you that you want the very best for your children. You don't want us to to think that there's something else that will satisfy, that we've got to pursue other things other than you, that you provide for us. You meet our needs. You go way beyond and give us blessings that often we overlook, uh, we don't acknowledge, we don't focus on because we focus on all these other things. Thank you that you are, as we sang earlier, working everything for our good and for your glory. We ask that where our hearts have drifted, where our minds have been double-minded, we say we're committed to God, we get caught up in the things of this world and in system, we pray, Lord, you'd forgive us. May we be broken and humble before you. May we lean into who you are. May we be serious, even in our physical posture, bowing down before you. And Lord, then we claim that promise that as we humble ourselves, you'll lift us up, not in position or pride, but you'll lift us up in your hope and give us clear eyes to see Jesus afresh. I pray for those who are wrestling with this. Maybe they feel like that middle school student. They look back and say, you know, over the course of these last few months, this last year, I think I forgot God. May they have that come to Jesus moment today. We pray in Christ's name, amen.